0: This week on Writers Inc.
1: My publisher really prioritized sending arcs out to not just South Asian readers, but like a diverse group of readers. Um, And that was really important to us. So we were trying to get books in the hands of people who might really connect with the story because, you know, the Ramayana is a story that a lot of people grow up with. So for a lot of people, it's like that connection is there. And I think when people read it and they felt that connection, they sort of told their friends and their family. Like since that time, I've had so many readers be like, oh yeah, I like bought a copy for my mom um, because she was the one who told me these stories or I bought a copy for all of my cousins for the So like people were just excited about it and wanted to share it within the community. And I think that really helped.
0: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is writers inc
2: hi it's christine dagel
0: patrick o'donnell
3: jp Reinflush, kevin tomlinson and jd barker welcome to writers inc um so simon and schuster back on the, the for sale block Do you guys see this i did no yeah. So they they just announced it. Um, so based on the, the previous court ruling by the Justice Department, they can't be bought by another publisher, another large publisher. So that's off the table. Um, but Paramount has put them back on the market again. Um, and I, I think they're aiming towards hedge funds. Um, they're going to try and go that route. Um, so we'll see if that plays out. I just saw that before we jumped on.
4: We should pool our money and buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get this. <laughs> Let me check the swear jar
3: and <laughs> see, what, see what's in there. Yeah. It won't take long <laughs> for me. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I've actually got a, a message, more of a request that I want to throw out there. So, my books do really well with book clubs. Um, and on my website, I've got book club questions, um, which is something that I learned a, a while ago. So, if you create those kind of things and put them out there and they're, they're available, a lot of book clubs will pick up your title, which is a great way to get in front of a lot of people all at once. Um, but I've only got questions for about half my books. Um, so, if anybody is interested in creating questions for the other half, um, just message me on my website. The questions will basically go up and I'll put your name on it with a link to your website or whatever. So, you can get the the traction from that. Um, but I need about half of them. So, um, and it, it's also, it's, it helps a lot when you're doing interviews, you know, like if you have those and you have to go back and talk about an older title and just kind of have to refresh yeah. your, your own brain on what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Um, come in an handy for that.
4: That's so. a brilliant idea, J.D. I'm going to steal that idea for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Uh, J.P., what's in the news? All right. So, in the realm of AI, uh,
5: Author Guild recommends clause in publishing and distribution agreements prohibiting AI training uses. So, the Authors Guild has created a new model clause to prohibit the use of an author's work for AI training without their express permission. That clause will be included in the Guild's model trade book contract and literary translation model contract. The clause is in response to, you know, the concerns that a lot of people have with platforms, data mining books to train AI models. And the article from Authors Guild actually contains what that clause looks like.
3: Wow, okay. Um, So I I personally, when I saw this, I did a quick copy and paste of the clause, uh, the link to the clause, (laughs) sent it off to all my agents and said, make sure this is in everything moving forward from here on, you know, henceforth till the end of time, blah, blah, blah. Um, have you guys read through this yet? Have you
4: seen it? Nope, I have not. But I, I'm gonna say, I, I, I'm just gonna be the guy who volunteers to let them train on my stuff. You bring it. <laughs> remove that clause from everything <laughs> that I sign. It's Kevin's world. Every that's AI right. will sound like Kevin. It's, <laughs> We're I, just it yeah, like... everything will sound like me. <laughs> I mean,
2: this that's is my chance. A legacy, right? Like,
4: oh, yeah. <laughs> right. You'll be the the Siri for audiobooks. That's right. I'm all in, man. Do we think this is necessary, really? I mean, do you – I know I'm a, I'm totally alone in this. I know that I am. But, I mean, is this really that big of a concern that we need to put it in contracts?
3: I'm I'm scared of the unknown, man. All I just, right. It, I, it, fre- it freaks I me out. I accept that.
4: Yeah, I accept that. I just I- – yeah. I
3: just, I, from my standpoint, I just don't know where they're going with it. Um, and at yeah. least I know if that clause is in there or something like it, it's going to at least spur a conversation with my publisher. You know, they're yeah. going to be like, well, we want to do this. Oh, but he's got that clause. Okay. Now we got to pick up the phone and actually talk to him about it.
6: I think it's all about the wording. Like we said last week, you know, it's very vague. It's very lawyer-y and the only way it's going to be very clear is going to be through case law. And that's going to be people suing other people or companies. And then there's going to be precedence, and then it'll just go from there.
5: Yeah. When I think about this, I think about how, even with the whole NFT boom that has since vanished, but uh, (laughs) the clauses in certain agreements that had no idea that a concept like NFTs could even exist. And then you had people that, you know, now they needed to revise their contracts. So I think that this is just another way. Uh, to potentially protect yourself or future-proof uh, some of your work or some of the ways that you want your work used. Um, that's the only argument I would have against yours is just a way to future-proof and to fully agree with everything that you are putting out there.
3: Just to mention something related to what Patrick just said, there was a court case that was just, um, there just came out, actually, not a court case. I think it was just the Copyright Office actually coming out with something. Um, but there's a comic book basically that somebody submitted for copyright. Um, they used uh, Mid Journey to create the images. Sounds like they created the text themselves. And the Copyright Office basically came back and said, okay, well, we can copyright the text, but not the images. Mm. Um, that's mm-hmm. very telling because it basically, you know, I think it tells the rest of us where the Copyright Office itself is leaning. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm not sure how they prove it you know like how how does the copyright office know when you submit a work how much was created by ai or yeah
4: unless you revealed it yeah and i i think i would definitely fight that because you know this is a work that they created there's a great deal of work that you didn't he didn't just go to mid-journey and say hey generate me 64 pages of comic book panels right and uh and make it fit this story like that's not the way that happened It, it it was meticulously crafted He did some Photoshop at work, you know, there's work involved in that. So if you can't trademark that, that there's trouble on the horizon for everybody.
3: Yeah. I've seen that argument pop up a couple of times. A lot of people, if you're not familiar with how mid journey works, you basically have to type a prompt into this. You have to say, give me a picture of X doing this and background that looks like this. You can be as descriptive as you want to be, um, but you have to feed that information in there. So even though he used an image that was created by mid journey, he basically told mid journey what image he wanted. Um, So there is Mm -hmm. creative input happening there. So yeah, these these waters are very muddy. Um, I can tell you on the text side that there are tools out there where you can take a block of text and you can drop it in there and it'll tell you how much of that text was created by an AI. Um, The funny thing is it's using an AI in order to determine how much of it was used by an AI. (laughs) Um, And it's basically fallen back on uh, DPT3 in order to do that. So like DPT3 can recognize itself is essentially what that means. Um, I'm not sure what that means when DPT4 comes out, if you use DPT3 and they're using DPT4 for the check, you know, like, I don't know how that's going to play out. Um, but I'm guessing at some point the Copyright Office is going to have to incorporate some type of tool like this into their their system. You submit the work as a Word doc, it's going to have to somehow read it and determine whether or not there's AI content there, I think. I mean, that's that's the only way I can see them handling this.
4: What a nightmare. Yeah, it's it's not like copyright <laughs> is is clean and simple as it is. Uh, so we're you know we're we're basically moving deeper into muddy waters out where the monsters lie.
3: Well, and that's only here in the U.S. too, right? Yeah. So what happens if you yeah.
4: use AI in, you know in Spain exactly. to create something?
3: Yeah.
5: <laughs> Uh, in other news, uh, the self-publishing boom continues. Uh, so this was an article that was talking about the self-publishing industry continuing to thrive with over millions of new ISBNs issued for indie books each year since 2019. Uh, and this data is from uh, Bowker. Uh, and in 2021, there was 2.2, almost 2.3 million new self-published titles with both ISBNs and BISAC codes. Um while this was a decline from the previous two years, it was still higher than 2018, which was $1.5 million. Uh, And fiction is the most popular category that we're seeing in self-publishing. And that bit of information just kind of shows us that self-publishing continues to, to grow and expand. And I'm excited to see where we go from, from
4: here. And I'm just going to tell you, most of those were draft digital. So. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what
2: I was thinking about. It's from Bowker, right? That sells the ISBNs, but a lot of indies uh, don't even buy ISBNs, right? Because right. you are publishing right. on on Ku, they just assign, you know, you an ASIN, and you don't even need to go there. So I wonder if the numbers are maybe even higher than what they're reporting there.
3: Well, yay, indies, Kevin. Let me ask you a question: Where, where does Draft2Digital get ISBNs from? If you like, do you supply them to to authors first? For stuff like can you
4: Yeah we give them through Balker just like okay. everyone else uh that's the only agency you can get them from in the US and um we we usually get like blocks of ten thousand at a time or something and we give them away uh for ebooks and print. So you know if you're if you brought a book in, you don't have to bring an ISBN we'll just give you one for free. So okay. and I I think pretty much anyone who does it this way, like you know, or even like um Publish drive and others. I'm pretty sure they all do it that way. I haven't asked them. <laughs>
3: any any idea with, and this is kind of a little bit off track here, but what, what's the legality of that? Like, do, does draft to digital actually own the ISBN when you buy them in no. block
4: like that? No, well, no. Uh, we're It's yours free and clear. Now, it does say when you, if you look at it, um, at say the Library of Congress, it'll say like draft to digital as like the publisher of record or something, uh, but that is pr- really practically meaningless. We own nothing, you know, no copyright, mm-hmm. no hold at all. The IP is entirely the authors. Um, and you can actually name yourself as the publisher of record on, uh, the websites and things. So it's, it's, it just, it, that's the only th- real hang up is that that's not trend. That part is not transferable mm-hmm. or editable. Um, cause they ha they require you to list who that is when you buy the, uh, when you buy it, but I could hand you in. I could buy a block of them myself and give them all away and let other people use them. There's never a an issue. I get nothing from that.
3: I've always bought my own blocks and just used my own just because of what you just said. Like, I know everybody gives them out. Um, You know, like Ingram used to, I think they still do that, too, and Mm -hmm. Amazon. Um, I just, I always got a little bit worried just because I wasn't the official person who bought it, you know, like from a record standpoint. And I don't know if that could ever be used against somebody. And I'm guessing it probably can't, just like you said. Um, But what it comes back to is to to Christine's point. That means that these numbers probably are accurate because everybody, if if they're all pulling them from from Bopper, then... That's a lot of books. I, I always, I assumed it was maybe a million a year. I, I had no idea it was this many.
2: Yeah. I know it's only looking at US, but the process in Canada is a little bit different. So if you're an indie publisher in Canada, you can get them free from the government. You just have to list yourself publicly as a publisher and then give a couple copy to legal deposit. So if it's an ebook, it costs you nothing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you have to send one copy, um, of your print books, but yeah, we just get them free from the government. So.
4: Yeah. And I would love to have that system in the U.S. Uh, I, I really, can't, I feel like the, the whole ISBN system is kind of broken. Uh, it's not consistent worldwide. So there's all kinds of weirdness that can happen. Um, and, and frankly, for the most part, most authors don't actually need an ISBN at all. Like you're, if you're just publishing eBooks, for example, you're, you know, every retailer has their own version of that. And some don't even use, use ISBN, you know, Amazon's got ASIN and, you know, I'm not going to try to name them off. There's a crazy number of them. They all use acronyms, but um, you don't, you know, if you don't have an ISBN at all, when you go to like direct or even through us um, it makes no difference. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, it's such
5: a pain point for, Uh, new authors too, because one single ISBN in the US costs $125, but you can buy a hundred of them and it's like five bucks a piece. It's, in my opinion, that's a very broken system that one ISBN can be accounted for such a high markup when realistically it can be given out for basically dollars or pennies.
4: Especially something that they're generating automatically. It's not like there's labor involved in creating that. It's like a spreadsheet.
6: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just happy to see indies flourishing, so that makes me happy. But on the flip side of that coin is yeah. now there's more competition. It, it just seems like, you know, it's like the competition just keeps on getting tougher and tougher. Kids got up that game.
4: I don't see it that way. I don't see it as competition. Like I guess do. that, that doesn't gel for me. Like, it it's not How it, could it it's not It's a zero-sum game out there, right? Like, if I if someone buys a John Grisham book or a Dan Brown book, it doesn't mean they're not going to buy a Kevin Tomlinson book. They it might Mm. you know skew the timing of when they buy it, but you're still. I just think
6: of like the old. I think of the old Kindle Gold Rush days where you could pretty much throw anything up there and you're going to sell a bunch. I saw that happen. Yeah, but now you have to have a decent game. You have to have a good. Well, it is a discoverability
4: edited book. Yeah, you're right. But that same problem applies to everybody. It's not just indies. But yeah, you're you're right. That if you if you want to look at that as competition, I can accept that. I accept your terms, Patrick. Okay. I mean, I, in the end, I'm it basically so comes down to
3: the, the the same simple truth, right? You have to write a yeah. good book, and that that book's yep. got to mm-hmm. stand out. I mean, there's a couple million books published every year. It really doesn't make a difference, I guess, from Amazon's standpoint. They're not pushing the ones that are ranked in the millions yeah. on their on their charts. They're, right. they're pushing the same ones that are rising to the top, and they're rising to the top because you know either there's an audience for it, or it's such a good title people are talking about it, or whatever. Um, so I think that's really where author's focus needs to be.
5: Last bit of news. Uh, Hachette and HarperCollins are offering voluntary severance packages as the economic outlook for publishers in 2023 is uncertain. Uh, so They've noted that there has been a slowdown in sales and a rising cost due to inflation and it's hurting their profits. So HarperCollins earnings fell by more than half uh, in its second quarter and profits fell at Hachette in 2022 despite a bump in sales. So these publishers are making layoffs to improve their returns on investment and face of higher costs. So I think I'm actually seeing this across the industry, not just the writing industry, but... I just oh, yeah. wanted to note it
4: here. But in light of the last story where we're seeing just, you know, this rise in self-published titles, like, what do you think is driving a drop for, for these, for this group? I would almost think it's based off
5: of the conversations we've had before. AI. What are publishers giving people? <laughs> no, no, I think that, but also like, what are publishers giving authors? And I think that they really need to look at, what they can offer authors as the indie author world expands and the knowledge of how to self-publish continues. That's a good point. They have to they have to figure out how to compete that, or they're just going to dwindle away.
3: I think they're also dealing with especially this this past year increased overhead. You know, inflation is hitting them just as hard as everybody yeah. else. Um, but the, the product line hasn't really changed. They've got the same number of books coming in, the same number that they're able to publish. But the cost of doing that has has gone up tremendously. You know, Harper You know, I, I don't know what the settlement uh, negotiations looked like for that strike. You know, that they just solved. But I'm sure people got a, a bit of a raise. You know, so that's all coming out of the bottom line. Um, you know, it's it's just one of those things. You know, as a, as an indie author, you're running your own ship, right? You're in control of everything, your budget, the, the amount you spend. Um, you know, every aspect of it, and it's just it's easier to maintain. I, I've always likened the you know publishing industry like the traditional guys are like a big cruise ship in a harbor, and an indie author is like a tiny little speedboat, you know, and you can just zip around and do this and do that while the, this big boat is just trying to make a you know slight left turn. Um, you know, it's a time where you can take advantage of that. Um, I, I think if the traditional guys want to survive they're going to somehow have to adapt some of that type of mentality they're going to have to learn to pivot a lot quicker adapt the latest things that are coming out a lot faster um, I mean it, it, you know, a couple of years ago they may not have seen indie authors as the competition but you know the truth is indie authors are now the competition um, you know if you lumped all the, the indie authors together and said this is one publisher it's probably the largest publisher in the world at this point um, you know that, that, that's how they need to look at it well, I was going to talk about YouTube.
6: I was listening to Joanna Penn's podcast yesterday, and YouTube is going to start pushing podcasts. Not that you can't have one on there, but they're going to make it more like user friendly. So they're seeing that podcasts are starting to boom. And, you know, one more thing to try and take advantage of.
3: Yeah, that, that was actually very interesting. So Joanna's been on YouTube for a long time. I know a lot of other, po- other podcasts are too, um, but it's tricky to get on there. So you basically have to take, you know, in this case, we've got an audio recording after this podcast is done. You've got to take that file. You've got to convert it into a video file, um, which means you have to throw some type of image on it. Um, I mean, you could technically use a blank screen or something or just one logo and just hold it there for the entire time. Um, but there's work involved in that. You know, there's time, you know, and somebody's got to play with a little bit of editing and, and you know, I, some, a lot of, or a lot of podcasts just aren't willing to go there. Um, So honestly, like if I wanted to break into that world, I would probably do it right now while it is difficult, you know, before everybody else gets in there. Because what YouTube is talking about doing is essentially just creating a a podcast marketplace similar to Spotify and everybody else. It's going to be audio only. Um, So it's just going to be an RSS feed, you know, that they, they link to similar as to the, you know, to what we're using now with the different platforms Um, and they're just going to upload all these podcasts. So if you really want to try and dominate in that market, you want to do it now while it's difficult. Difficult get in front of this big group that's just going to show up there, you know, more or less on their own, you know, without any real e- effort um, in a year or two. Um, you know, so try and beat that crowd.
2: So we'll be on YouTube next week, then. That's what we're saying. <laughs> Writers ain't <are> coming <laughs> to YouTube next week.
3: So Okay, so Christine just volunteered to do the editing work. I'm thinking yeah. Fiverr. I think we could find someone way like on Fiverr. Fiverr. <laughs> Probably.
4: This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, Later Press. Later Press is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. Later Press is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at laterpress.com.
2: Awesome. So, with that JD who's up this week
3: i'm going to probably butcher this again and i apologize in advance vashnavi patel um, she's a debut author her first book was called kaikai Kai e, um hit the new york times bestseller list at 14 um, and a lot of that was due to tiktok um, so here she is uh, vashnavi
2: so we're talking about your book uh kaikai Kai e, and i know it's been a journey for you as a debut author who hit the new york times bestseller list Um, If you don't mind, I'd like to kind of start at the beginning and uh, tell us a little bit about putting this book through the Pitch Wars Mentorship Program and getting your agent. What was it like working with your mentor?
1: Yeah, so I realized after I finished drafting Kaikai that, you know, this book, actually, there's like something there I really want to potentially pursue publication and then I have this realization of like I have no idea how any of this works like how getting an agent works how getting an editor works um like I'd been on Twitter I'd been in the writing community for a little bit but I hadn't immersed myself enough to to know what was going on and I also knew that like this is sort of my first like real solid novel and it probably needs some work before it's ready to go out there but i'm personally at the point where i like i'm sort of blind to any issues cuz i've been seeing it for so long and so pitch wars sort of seemed like the natural place to to go like back in the day when it was around it was a mentorship program it helped you navigate the industry it helped you revise your book it was like everything i needed so i applied to pitch wars um i got to work with my wonderful mentor, Sarah Remy, who was exactly what I needed. She like had ideas about what to do with the book and how to improve it. But she also had been through the publishing process many times. She'd worked with traditional publishers, indie publishers. Um, she'd been agented. She'd, she currently didn't have an agent because she was more on the indie side. Um, it turned out that her first book had actually come out with my editor. So she ended up knowing my editor very well. And her editing process. So through it all, she was able to be like this, just guide explaining, you know, this is how you query. This is what goes in a query. She like helped me tighten it up. Then like, these are the agents that have good reputations. These are the agencies that have good reputations. This is who you should definitely reach out to. This is who you should probably never reach out to things that I would have never guessed. Right. Cause like, all I had to go off of was looking at agency websites and sort of, trying to guess if they were good or not and so it was it was exactly what I needed I don't think I would have been that successful or possibly like even gotten an agent or an editor at all if I hadn't gone through the pitch wars process first
2: yeah and it's quite an intense process three months of intensive revision and then an agent showcase where you kind of wait to see if you're going to get requests what was that like for you uh going through that how did the showcase go for you?
1: You know, it was pretty nerve wracking to be like, "Will agents like it? Will they bite?" Like at requests, I ended up getting an okay number of requests, especially for you know adult fantasy. But I actually, I ended up when I finally got an agent, I ended up with four offers, and none of them were from pitch requests. <laughs> like not not a single one. Uh, what I really ended up helping me actually land the agent was DV Pit, which I'm not sure if it's still around or if it's now like broken up into specific types of like owned voices and diverse stories but at the time there was this pitch contest on Twitter for sort of anybody from a marginalized background and I pitched there in mid-April so a couple months after the showcase because you know in March it was the pandemic everything had just shut down for the first time and I sort of had like paused on querying and was you know trying to like my dad had gotten COVID there was just a lot going on. So I had paused and then I decided to get back into it in, um, in April and I did DB pit. And from there I got some pretty quick bites and my first offer pretty quickly. And, um, none of my offers were from showcase requests. There were so many that were still outstanding. And then when I nudged them, they politely stepped aside, which is totally fine, but it goes to show in the pitch experience that like, the showcase is really not the point of it. Like people do it for the showcase and the showcase can be really helpful, but it's not, it's not really what's going to get you into the industry, right? That's the mentorship. That's the revision. That's having extra knowledge to guide you through the process. The showcase is hit and miss because it's not every agent in the universe. Like my agent doesn't participate in the wars showcase. So if I had just limited myself to that universe, I would have never found her.
2: Wow, that's excellent. That's quite a journey. And then um, take me through what happened when your book was released. How did you find out you hit the bestseller list with your debut?
1: Yeah, so that's a, it's like a funny story, I guess. I think everybody has this sort of story. Um, But I, when it, when it came out, I didn't think it was going to make that big of a splash. I had been really excited because it had gotten into book of the month, which I'm a subscriber to. So I was like, Oh, awesome. Like I'm going to get to, you know, go to all of the book of the month subscribers and that's like great exposure. So that was sort of like the dream for me, right? Like at no point was I dreaming of the New York times, because I, I never thought it was on the table. And then on, on that Wednesday, when the list came out, like a few hours before the list goes live, I get a call from my editor and I was like, why is she calling me? Um, but like, obviously I picked up cause I wasn't not going, I was going to ghost my editor. And she was like, you hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I, I was like, I think I literally said to her, am I being pranked? Is that really you? Like, I was just like, in so much shock that I thought it was all like a joke or a lie and then she was like no no you really hit like you hit at number 14 um we're so excited for you it'll be live in a couple of hours like congratulations and it really like took a while to sink in like I don't think I actually believed it or accepted that it had happened until I actually saw the list like on the New York Times website and then I was like oh oh my god it's real um So it was just really shocking. And I think for me, it's a, it's a testament to how there was a lot of organic support, especially from other South Asian authors and readers who were really excited to see that representation. And I had no idea that this was going on because like, it wasn't a big, splashy marketing campaign. It wasn't, I mean, my, my publisher did great marketing and publicity, but this was sort of coming from like a, very organic sort of ground level. And so I had never thought it was possible um, until it happened.
2: That's amazing. Um, and where do you think that our organic support was coming from? Just in sales or were there things going on on social media? I know it was kind of blowing up on TikTok. Um, where do you think that the support was coming from?
1: Um, I think it was a combination of things. So like my my publisher really prioritized sending ARCs out to not just South Asian readers, but like di- a diverse group of readers. Um, and that was really important to us. So we were trying to get books in in hands of people who might really connect with the story because, you know, the Ramayana is a story that a lot of people grow up with. So um, for a lot of people, it's like that, that connection is there. And I think when people read it, and they felt that connection, they sort of told their friends and their family, like, it, since that time, I've had so many readers be like, Oh, yeah, I like, bought a copy for my mom um, because she was the one who told me these stories or I bought a copy for all of my cousins for the body. So like people were just excited about it and wanted to share it within the community. And I think that really helped. And then I'm not on TikTok. So I've like heard that Kiki is around on book talk, but I like, I'm scared of it. Like I, (laughs) I, I know I'm like the target demographic as like a, you know, 26 year old author or whatever, but I'm afraid, A, that I will lose all my time into it because I've seen it on my sister's phone and it's like addictive. Um, and second of all, I just like, I have tried to take myself out of all spaces where people are talking about gay gay because I also just find that like anxiety inducing. But I think that like there were some creators on there who were who, like received ARCs and were very excited about the book. And uh, I'm sure that like sort of word of mouth helped a lot. So I think it was a combination of factors, but you know, my publisher and I really wanted to prioritize getting it into the hands of readers who like knew the stories and had a connection to the stories. And I think that paid a lot of dividends towards not only getting on the list, but the book like continuing to reach readers and continuing to sell and things like that. Um, I think that that has been a huge factor.
2: Awesome. So I want to know how did you juggle debuting, graduating law school, getting married? starting a new job. And I think you had a pretty serious health issue as well. And it all kind of came at the same time.
1: Yeah. So in a way, I was like a little bit lucky because it all happened one after the other. So like my book released in April, I graduated law school in May. I got married in June. I took the bar in July. I got sick in July. So that was like, I was sick from like July to November, which was not fun and it was pretty serious but at that point in a way it was really nice because my like not nice but it was convenient because my book had launched i didn't have to like travel around make appearances which i would would have not been able to do like i had actually scheduled some appearances or like you know helping out with like friends as launches and stuff and i was like canceling left and right because i was in the hospital um but for the most part it was like that had quieted down and I started my new job I supposed to start in September, but they let me start in October because September was sort of the worst month of the illness. Um, and so I started a new job in October when I was sort of slowly starting to recover. So it's been a chaotic year, but in a lot of ways, like a lot of the important stuff happened one after the other. And so I was able to sort of like, I, I really just had to compartmentalize. I was like, okay, April is just about the book launch. May is just about. Passing my last semester of law school. June is about getting married. July is about passing the bar. Like I was just like very like it sounds comical now, but in the moment it really worked because I was like, okay, we're not thinking about anything else but X for like these several months or several weeks, and then once that's done, now we're moving on to Y. And so it never got like overwhelming. It was just sort of like busy, Um, and a lot of that stuff was really fun. I mean, other than getting sick and taking the bar. Like launching a book was nerve wracking, but it was fun to like go and talk about the book. And um, I got to do a launch event at the Strand, which is like kind of insane um, because I like love that bookstore just like as a customer. So I was like, oh, my God, you want me here as like an author? Um, And, you know, graduating law school, I mean, taking finals isn't fun, but then like graduating and celebrating with your friends is like a fun moment and having your family there was really nice and then obviously getting married is like so much work in the lead up but then so much fun on the actual like I mean it was an Indian wedding so like several <laughs> days but it's, it's so much fun once I actually reached the event and yeah, like you know um getting married to my husband was like great <laughs> um and then starting my new job is also something I was really excited about because I'm working at a job I really love I do um, mostly like civil rights law right now. And so, I mean, just, just remembering to be excited about those things. And it's, it's really funny because my mom tells me, I find I am the kind of person who can find the downside in anything. Like, like, she's like, sometimes you just got to stop and be like, you hit the New York times bestseller list. You did better than you ever thought you would like, just be happy for a second. And don't be like, Oh my God, what if book two is terrible? What if this happens? What if that happens? because that's, that's how I am. Like when I pause to reflect, I'm actually very grateful that despite some of the challenges, like I did get to have such a great 2022.
2: Nice. So I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your book. It's a feminist retelling based on the Ramayan from the perspective of the central figure's mother. Uh, What was your thought process coming up with that storyline? Yeah. So
1: it, it sort of started when I was like first hearing these stories as a kid, because Kaikeyi is such, such a complicated character in the Ramayana. Like most people sort of view her as an uncomplicated person who is just like evil. I see that the term Kaikeyi is thrown around a lot towards like older women who people like don't like, like politicians or things like that. People will be like, oh, she's like a Kaikeyi. Um, Although it's also interesting because like, I have a good number of haters and they'll always be like, Geike has never been evil. Like this retelling is so unnecessary. And it's like, okay, then like, why is that term used as an epithet in our culture? Um, but my mom and my grandma sort of portrayed this more complicated view of her, which is very accurate to the actual text, which is that she's, um, she really loves her kingdom. She really loves Ram she's brave, she's smart, she's determined, and she exiles Ram in like a moment of jealousy that, so So in some versions, it's like a moment of jealousy that shouldn't undo, you know, um, all of her other deeds, and in some versions, they say she exiled Ram because he, like, needed to go out and fight and couldn't just be here in the kingdom where everything was perfect, like he in a way the story is that he he wasn't ready to be king because he needed to experience the rest of the world in kaikei it's a little more extreme than that but at its core it's still sort of presenting kaikei as this like figure who wants to do right by ram but recognizes that he's not ready in this moment to take the throne and so she's going to do what she needs to do to help her kingdom and her people but she she does still love him and I've just never seen anything from her perspective, like explaining all of this. Like you got a few verses in the poem and then she's gone and the rest of it is Rom's journey. But she's the one who kicks it all off. So it seemed to me that there was a lot there because these snippets that you do get, like things that we know about her. She grew up with a lot of brothers. She was raised to be or to know like some, some amount of warrior arts. She drove her husband's chariot in battle and saved his life. Um, and she was like a beloved queen. So it's not a lot, but it's not nothing. Like there is a story there that could be told. And when I looked around sort of nobody was telling it. Um, and that sort of, I was like, I want to, I want to dig into this. I think it'll be really interesting. And this is the story out of all the other stories that I heard in my childhood that just keeps bothering me. Like maybe that's not logical, but that was just what was what had always been speaking to me since I had first heard it as a kid. And so I was sort of like, well, let's like go down this rabbit hole and see what happens. And when I started writing it, I was never thinking like, oh, I'm going to publish it. I was just like, this is stuck in my head. And it's time to sort of put these thoughts on paper, get it out and like be done. And only after I I did that, I sent it to my sister and she was like, maybe we should publish this. And then I got that, you know, then I got that thought stuck in my head and the rest is history.
2: Excellent. So it's always tricky when you're uh, dealing with a retelling of scripture. So how are you dealing with those who might, you know, have opinions on Ram's human form being fallible?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question because I personally think that I think of Hinduism as a religion of philosophy, right? Like all of these stories are not necessarily there to they're there to teach you a certain way of living and often in a didactic way, or in a like by example way, or the the sage is asking the prince questions and you're supposed to be thinking about the answers to those questions yourself. Like it's not, there is a lot of faith in Hinduism and there is a lot of spirituality, but also a philosophy about how to live. And so to me, you know, writing this story in a way in which Ram's human form is fallible, but ultimately, you know, I mean, spoilers for the book, kind of, his like righteous side does win out, right? Like at the end he shows that he has grown and he has like learned lessons and all of that. Um is is sort of like the point. Like humans are fallible, but they can grow, especially if they have like the blessing or the guidance of the gods. Um So I don't really think I was saying anything like that upsetting. um, Because like, you know, I am a Hindu. So like, I'm I'm not, I'm not gonna say anything that I find like religiously offensive um, about my own religion. But but like, I do think that there are elements of the religion that need to be like talked about and questioned. Like, I think like all major religions, Hinduism has a patriarchal element. Like, you can't name me a single major religion that doesn't because it it doesn't exist. But you know, Hinduism is my religion. So I'm going to talk about that issue in Hinduism as opposed to like Islam or something. Um, and so people, there's some people who are like mad because they're like Hinduism isn't patriarchal. Like it's not, there's no problems with it. And to say so is to like feed into stereotypes. And I'm just like, okay. So then like, you know, tell me why girls are still like required to be virgins and like pure and why in a lot of households still like women on their periods can't enter the kitchen and why it's so important for women to like get married and have children more important than anything else. Like all of these are things that we can find in other cultures, right? But just because they're in other religions doesn't mean that they're okay. Yeah. And women are taught to like, you know, listen to the men in their lives. And so to me, I just find that like comical. And then there's people who are mad specifically about Ron's characterization. And to that, it's like, I understand, like, you can be mad about like, I'm not I'm not going to say you can't be mad about it, because like, to some people, it is upsetting to think of Ram as anything less than perfect. And that's fine. I just think that I have like a right to tell my version of the story, especially since I'm not claiming it's the actual Ramayan. Um, And so like, there's been this recent the book got pulled in India. And after that, people were telling me like, oh, like, you know, it should have gotten pulled, like it shouldn't be published or like, a- available. And I was like, you know we can have disagreements, but like you can't you can't be pro censorship. Like that's that's a bridge too far. So I don't re- I try really not to engage that much because I just don't think I'm ever going to change their mind when they're that level of extreme about it. And people people will just like find things to be offended about once they're offended. Right? Like I once had somebody send me on my website this like literally five or six page long list of every inconsistency between Gaikai and the ramayan like like page by page and i was like first of all my author's note literally says that some of these are inconsistencies so you haven't like gotcha me because i'm i'm aware like i made these choices and second of all like w- what is the point here like I, I didn't say this is if you want the ramayan go read Valmiki's ramayan like I don't I don't know what's going on here so I think once people get offended they find anything to be mad about but I personally don't see anything wrong with, with retelling scripture as long as it's done in like a respectful way and I feel like I made every effort to be respectful to like read many translations of the story to you know speak to people in the community about it um and to like very carefully, like line by line, sort of be like, is, is this what I want to portray? And I don't, I don't know. I, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I don't really argue with them. Like they, they'll like come to my website and say all this stuff. And I just like delete it. Like, I don't see any point in engaging when you're that
2: mad yeah. about it. <laughs> I think you're in good company. I think there's a history of that about authors writing fictionalized versions of history and religion and people getting offended. Um, I think that only you know yeah it's not that big a I deal <laughs> i didn't
1: like hear about i don't know if you've heard of the book of longings it's no. a, is it who's it by it's by um a pretty prominent author i just i'm blanking on who is it Sumon kid some the, the book of longings is a retelling of parts of the bible um parts of jesus's life from the perspective of Jesus's wife, which like yeah, a, it's a pretty um, premise, and um it, I think it's an excellent book. But like, I don't, I don't remember people being like that out about it when it's clearly portraying Jesus in a very different light than what he is portrayed as in the Bible. But like, people do this all the time, and I think there is some element, you know, of like there's not that much representation for these kinds of stories. And, you know, I mean, you have Chitra Banerjee, the Vakaruni, who wrote a couple of Hindu myth retellings about 12 years ago. And then you have Roshni Chokshi, who's writing sort of Arusha, which is not a retelling. It's sort of like Percy Jackson, but for Indian myth. And then you have Gay Gay. So there's not, the pickings are slim if you're looking for Hindu myth representation. And it's it can't be everything to everybody, right? Like, I get so many messages from Hindu women who read this book and they were like, I was very moved. Like it said a lot of things about the religion that I have been feeling and that I've been struggling with. And it just meant a lot to like see that represented. And if I had gone with the traditional version of the myth, these people wouldn't have felt represented, but maybe the like traditionalists would have versus the version that I told that was the story I want to tell connects with some Hindus, but not others. And I think, really what we're mad about or what these people are mad I mean they're definitely mad about the book but more than that they're mad that there's not that same level of representation in U.S. publishing where they can see themselves reflected in in the stories about their myths and that sucks like we got 50 Greek myth retellings which is like great but that's but the myth retellings we're getting outside of Greek myths are so limited right now, right? Like the money is going to Greek myth retellings. So like other cultures aren't seeing themselves represented or they're seeing themselves in like one book, right? There's like in this current boom, there's been like one Southeast Asian myth retelling, one South Asian myth retelling, like two East Asian myth retellings. Like it's getting doled out at such a small rate that there's not enough for everybody to see themselves represented versus, I mean, the Greek the Greek pantheon isn't widely worshipped anymore, I'm pretty sure. But like, if it was, I'm sure that in these books, there would be something for everybody, because there's such a variety. And I think that's sort of the broader thing that people are mad about is like, if if you if you're a traditionalist, you want to see yourself represented, you have that, like, you should be able to see yourself represented in the literature that's coming out today. But you're not going to, because in the past five years, like, it's sort of creepy. And like, the middle grade books, um, and I think that's what's like upsetting more broadly, yeah.
2: yeah and it's Sorry, an it's like an interesting went off point. no, because it's an interesting point, too. Because you think about it, and Greek mythology is considered classics or literary, and then why is that? Why are we, you know, having Zeus and Minotaurs are considered literature when they're based on, uh, you yeah. know, a religion that may not widely be practiced anymore, whereas fictionalized retellings of other myths are not considered literary yeah
1: so i Kaikei was mostly classified as either fantasy or historical which i sort of agree with like there is one fantastical element to Kaikei, which is the binding plane which is sort of like based on some of the like mantras and like religious practices but not actually like a element of hinduism and then there, it's mostly otherwise historical. Like it's retelling a religious text and I would not classify that as fantasy. Um, but it is it is interesting because like it, it has been put much more in the fantasy space than a lot of other, than a lot of Greek myth retellings. But like, if you think about, you know, something like The Witch's Heart, which is a Norse myth retelling, that was also put firmly into fantasy, even though it's retelling stories from the Norse pantheon. So it's not just just Hinduism, and it's not even just non-Western religions, because it seems more to be that, like, it's often Greek myth retellings get to be, like, one category, and then all other retellings are, like, I'm also thinking of Sister Song, which is retelling, like, British myths, which is about as Western classical as you can get, and that was also classified as fantasy
2: yeah it's interesting i'm not really sure why that is that the greek gets the literary but i mean i guess because it's been studying it as a classic probably yeah in the school system for so long that's probably I think where that it comes has from. something to do with it that we
1: or not all but many people read the odyssey mm-hmm. some amount of people read the iliad like you you read shakespeare's plays some of which touch on this stuff you you sometimes read like greek like you read antigone Um, Oedipus Rex like these are all part of like the educational canon and so I think because of that they're not viewed as like fantastical to the same extent.
2: Yeah I agree. Um, I also want to talk about your Arrow Ace character just presented without explanation which I really appreciated that it wasn't an issue or a struggle for her story. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah so there's sort of two reasons why I did that.
1: One I just wanted that representation um, I think that like airways characters are becoming more common, but they're often side characters because, I mean, a lot of genre conventions require or heavily encourage romance. And so like how are you going to have a main character without romance is often something that people ask and are, are looking for in books. And and that like excludes a whole category of people. Um, but I also just wanted to like a lot of airways character stories are about like feeling um, like different or broken or like can they have real relationships and that's all like important to be explored but I just wanted to write a character that was like this is who she is she still like loves lots of people and is loved in return and like has a family and has like all of these fulfilling things in her life and that that's that on that I think it was particularly interesting to do this for Geige's character because she's often portrayed in this like seductress archetype in the Ramayan and in like actresses who play her like she's like an older but still hot actress or like that's sort of how she is portrayed in contrast to Sita who is like young and pure and like virginal and that's sort of the way that she's portrayed and so Taigai is sort of for, for, for whatever reason and I mean I think we can name some of the reasons but um even though she's like a warrior and she earned her boons and she earned the right to do this, um, she's portrayed as sort of like taking off all her clothes and like throwing herself to the ground to convince the king to go through with it and like sort of using her body and using her womanly wiles. And I just think that's kind of ridiculous. Like she, she was powerful. She had the independent power to do this. And while I think it's, you know, there's some power in like reclaiming women's sexuality and sensuality, In this story, I wanted to show that it's not, like, she's not using that. Like, that's just not even a tool that she thinks of. she has plenty of other things that she can do, and she does use them, but she's not here to be like, oh, look at my body. Like, don't you want to now follow my word? Um, And so I think it's particularly meaningful for her character because of the way that she's been archetyped for so long, and because so many evil women in myth are, are either seductresses, like um calypso or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or they're like crones, like ugly hags that nobody wants to be with and they're like bitter and whatever. You know, it's it's really like the evil stepmother archetype. Yeah. They're like a beautiful, vain older woman who's like seducing the father and
2: so dumb. Yeah. And I, I appreciate I mean she's smart, she's competent, and that doesn't even need to enter into the story. Um and it was pretty touching, I mean, that she was just uh, not seeing the fruits of her labor, right? She was very frustrated, but only seeing that from the male perspective until finally seeing, you know, what the how the women are seeing her. And that kind of, I think, changed her <laughs> opinion of herself. Um, yeah, so are you also currently working on another retelling from the Mahabharata.
1: um I am I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say but uh book two I've done like one round of big edits it just went back to my editor actually um I think it was scheduled for later this year I'm not sure if that's actually going to come to pass because there's so many like paper shortages and, like yeah this. like there's just so the much going chain on is like really messing with the book industry <laughs> so I have I have no idea if that's going to like Succeed in happening, or if they might just want to give it some like grace period and put yeah. it in 2024. But I am working on a myth retelling, and it's like completely different. Um, it, I mean, I can definitely say it involves Ganga, the river goddess, so it's like in part told from the perspective of a river. Um, the magic system is like completely different. The themes are different. Like, I, I mean, I guess it's feminist and that it's like following a woman, but it's like, she's she's really a god. Like she, like, it's not really about like women's power versus men's power and those dynamics, but it is about like power in a different way. So it just, it's completely different. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that people who like AK will like this, but I also am like, I can't write the same thing twice. Like I just sort of struggle with that. Um, and so I was like, "What if I wrote a myth retelling that's completely different from what I've established myself as doing?" So we'll see if I'm shooting myself in the foot or
2: not. <laughs> oh, I'm sure not. I'm sure it'll be fantastic. Uh, so as we just wrap up, I have one final question: If you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring authors, what would it be? Um, this question is so
1: hard because I, there's so much I want to say. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do two, but they're related. I would say the first thing is like find your people. Publishing can be very lonely without finding your people. And I mean, I found my people in large part through pitch wars or through like, you know, I live down the street from one of my friends who's also an author. Like, just sort of organically that randomly happened. Um, and I, I live in like a place that does not have many authors, so you don't have to live in New York City for that to to happen. Um, but like, find find people who you can like talk to and vent to, like. Because you don't want to vent on social media, um, but but who are there to support you and to answer your questions? Because you are like stronger as a group, right? Like as a group, you are more likely to have knowledge about what agents are good to pitch to, what editors are good to pitch to, what pitfalls there are in your debut year, what things you should definitely do, what things you should definitely not do. Like finding your people in some way, even if it's just online, because that can be so rich and meaningful. Is, is really important. And then I'd say the flip side of that though is like, be easy on yourself. Like other your friends might get an agent before you or might get a book deal before you. Um, and that happened to me many times. And I just sort of had to be like, we're writing different books and like it will happen at different times. Like the only time you should be like upset or, or jealous that something happened for somebody else is if you would rather have written their book. Because if you wouldn't have rather written their book, if you would have rather written what you're writing, then you have to just accept that it's going to happen for your project the way it's going to happen for your project. And so I would say like, when you find your people, it's so easy to start playing the comparison game and to be like, oh, also like, what if they think I'm a loser? Because like, they've all gotten agents and I don't have an agent. Like, what if they don't want to hang out with me anymore? And so I would just say that like, be kind to yourself like it's it, except that if there's so much randomness and there's so much luck that it's not you personally who's experiencing these things it's like maybe a single project and there will be more or it's like a single agent and there will be more um but like find your people but then like be be kind to yourself
2: so i want to know we talked a lot about uh mentorship and i know it was very important both to uh to both of us in our careers, what are your thoughts on how important mentorship is in the industry?
3: Well, first of all, have you guys ever, like I never heard of Pitch Wars before. Um, I so I either. actually, listening to this interview, I hit the pause button, I went and looked at it. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like a, a really cool option to basically get your entire presentation streamlined. Um, I, I often encourage people to go to pitch fest and do those types of things, even if you don't get an agent out of it, just so that you get your pitch down, you know, learn how to talk about your book in front of other people in an intelligent way. Um, but it sounds like they really, they help you with every level of it. Um, so if anybody, I don't know if any of you have experience with, with pitch wars, but if you can explain what that is, I think our audience would love it.
2: No, yeah. I'd be happy to, cause I went through it. We were in the same class of pitch wars. So they assigned you, it's unfortunately no longer exists. I think 2020 or 2021 might've been the last year, but they would assign you an industry mentor, which was often, you know, an author uh, that was farther along or you know, sometimes an editor, and they'd work with you for three months on your book um, to make revisions. So they'd, you know, get lots and lots of applicants, they would pick the applicant they wanted to work with. Um, My mentor was Tim Akers, who was phenomenal, probably doesn't listen, but hi, Tim, just in case, Uh, work with you for three months on your book, and then they'd put it in an agent showcase. So they would have agents that would come and look at the pitches, look at the sample and request. So literally, they'd go out all the YA books would go out one day, well, the adult books will go out another day and then you just get agent requests for fulls. Um Nerve wracking. I was really burned out after doing it because like I rewrote a whole book in three months that was like, you know, 95,000 words, but it was fabulous. Like I learned a ton and it was a great experience, you know, got a lot of author community and friends, but, you know, I would highly recommend if you see an opportunity like that, I know there's mentorship and, you know, SFWA and some those kind of opportunities, but well worth it.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of authors don't um, necessarily do a lot of these. They don't take advantage of these types of opportunities. And you really need to because, you know, writing a book, it's such a solitary thing. You're locked in this room all by yourself. Um, you know, so you can either, you know, after you get that book done, you can basically stumble around in the dark and try to figure out how to do all these next steps uh, or talk to somebody who's been there, done that. And that, that's essentially what, what they were doing. I'm, I'm all for mentoring. I mentor as many people as I can. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that I learned in this industry, it came from, you know, picking the brains of other people that have, had already been there.
6: Well, I think at Thriller Fest, they have pitch fest
3: don't they they do yeah
6: yeah we there's agents and you you do your elevator pitch you know to you know a room full of agents and you you know bang 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 so i don't know how many um, cons do that i know that thriller fest does but that's another way that you could do it
4: a lot of the bigger conferences will do that i know they do that in san francisco and uh the uh, nebula awards or the the sifwa conference has that and uh, it, it is a great I mean, what's interesting to me is to watch people sort of nervously hanging out in the hallway, like <laughs> practicing their pitches with each other, you know, it, it's, uh, it's really interesting and not an experience I've had, like, that's not something I've done yet. So maybe I should participate in those. though, just to just to kind of experience it and learn from it.
3: I did a writer's digest conference a few years back and I was one of their, their keynote speakers. But when we had lunch, I I sat down with all the agents and like, they didn't realize that who I was or anything like that. I was just, you know, this guy sitting at the table with long hair. Um, But I was listening to their, their feedback and then the agents talking to each other about all the pitches from the pitch session earlier um, and what they liked and what they didn't like. And the general gist that I got out of it is a lot of people, everybody's nervous when they walk in there. A lot of people tend to memorize their pitch, which is a really bad idea. So they basically get in front of the agent and they don't have the sheet of paper in front of them anymore, but they just rattle off, you know, three, 400 words or whatever was on their sheet of paper before they sat down in front of that agent. Um, and it's as if they're talking to a wall, um, the ones that actually do well are the ones that actually have a conversation with the agent. Um, so if you want to get in, in one of these and actually make an impression, you know, write down the bullet points of, of your particular pitch, memorize just the bullet points and, and what your, your responses are to those and try to get a dialogue going with that agent um, and treat it almost like speed dating. You know, you basically you're talking to one agent for three minutes or five minutes or whatever. Pay particular attention to what resonates with that, that one person and then take that knowledge with you to the next table, you know, fine tune your pitch pitch as you go. When you jump from one agent to the next, you know, if something's working, you know, grab it, keep going with it. If something falls
4: flat, drop it from your pitch, but use it to, to tweak the the entire process. I'm going to follow JD's advice then. And when I finally sit down, I'm going to look him square in the eye and say, how you doing? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I would say too, that, uh, there's the,
5: the traditional publishing route for mentorship, but also self-publishing route for mentorship. And like I attribute, my writing career really taking off in 2017 when I went to Zach and Jay's event. Um, And that's actually where I met Christine. And honestly, like all of the stuff that I've learned from them over the years has been incredible. And it has been how I've kind of like gone in my writer journey. And to that argument, like you can do things alone, but if you don't have that community, I feel like you do things much slower because you just don't know what you don't know. Uh, So I really strongly argue for people to be able to go to events in whatever direction they want to go, traditional or self-publishing, and find people and actually like create some kind of a community.
2: Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about uh, Vaishnavi's book a little bit because she replayed with telling like a well-loved traditional story. And I'm just curious if anyone has done that, done a retelling, what your experience has been with it, why you've done it, what kind of angle you've taken on it.
4: I think the closest I've done is I, I I wrote a a novella called um, uh, the bones of St. Nicholas. And I, I pull in some actual history of the real St. Nicholas, or at least one version of St. Nicholas. And they're the actual bones that are in this, um, this uh, church in Italy. Uh, And I, I kind of bent the the story a little uh, and the legend a little, that's about the closest I've come.
3: (laughs) Well, when I heard that she hit the the New York Times list, and while I was listening to this interview, you know, the, the, I had to put my marketing hat on and my you know my business hat on. Like, what elements were there that that got this book to that point? Um, and first thing I did is I, I looked up uh, the, the the legend itself and read it. Um, and there's there's tons of stuff out there. And then at, that immediately it's an interesting story, you know. So like that immediately took me to another legend, which took me to another one. Um, and like it's this gold mine of of material, um, but. So some of the other things that I, I, I was looking at, um, like there are, I, I wrote down the facts because I would never remember this 1.1 billion Hindus in the planet. So like that, that, you know, there, there's 8 billion people total. So like that is an insane number of the population that already identify with this particular topic now here in the U.S. And this is where it was key for me because, you know, that's obviously a big number. But like, you know, how did you hit the New York Times list? So here in the U.S., there's three point three million Hindus that are basically been I identified or identify that way. Um, but they're all concentrated in two states, California and New Jersey. So obviously there are people from India in other parts of the country, but the bulk of them are in California, New Jersey. So if you're at a publishing company and you're trying to figure out where you're going to spend your marketing dollars, like this is it's almost like a layup. You know, you've got two states out of 50. Yeah. You've got a general population that you can go after. Um, you know, like the marketing behind that must – they must have had a ball. Um, and this could be duplicated. Yeah,
4: and that concentration. Yeah. I mean, you can you could spend all your ad dollars in California and New Jersey and still hit the New York Times list. And, and I
3: can guarantee – Considering the population is divided up in those two states, but, you know, obviously there are people that are, you know, that are Hindu in other parts of the country, they probably have relatives in California or New Jersey, which means you get somebody in California to read this book, they're going to tell their relative in Indiana about it, you know, so like that word of mouth is, is going to carry it. Um, so, yeah, so if you're looking for something to write about, you know, obviously st- stay away from the Greek stuff because you, you guys touched on that in the, the interview. I mean, it's been done to death, but there are so many more stories like this that you can get out there and tell that just haven't been touched
2: yet awesome so jd who's up next week
3: uh next week we've got tracy clark she's the author of the highly acclaimed cast reigns chicago mystery series and a two-time winner of the sue grafton award her latest novel is called hide and it released in january
2: fantastic if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish make sure you go to writers dot com and sign up now We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.